Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly novelty key ring yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> The good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times. I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of great apps up now, and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the final part of chart music episode 52 i'm your host al needham alongside my dear dear friends neil Kulkarni and taylor Potts. before we plunge in to the final bit just want to remind you if you want the full episode in one go with no adverts just by lobbing a few mingy dollars every month to patreon.com slash chart music will guarantee you the full episode fresh out the box Anyway, sermon over at last. Let's rejoin the episode in progress. singles that can be called Top 40 Breakers, because they're the ones to watch for next week on Top of the Pops. Here, for example, Bill Sharp of Shack Attack and Gary Newman. They've got together out of the discos and into the charts with Change Your Mind. Immediately whipped into a feature on Top of the Pops, which was introduced only last month, the Breakers section. And first up is Change Your Mind by Sharp and Newman. Hello, Newman. (laughs) (laughs) Formed in London in 1984, Sharp and Newman came into being when Bill Sharp, last seen on chart music sticking his red shiny arse out at us while in his regular job as a keyboard player in Shack Attack, was fooling around with this very song in the studio and feeling it needed a steely detached vocal. His words. 
At that very moment, according to the Bits section of Smash Hits, in walked the person who had booked the studio next door that very day. The Noom. He was more than happy to throw his voice down a mic and they decided to team up. This is their first single together. It entered the charts last week at number 43. And this week it soared 15 places to number 28, making it this week's highest new entry in the top 40. We haven't got Depeche Mode, we haven't got Madonna, but here's the Noom again. <laughs> well, what's interesting here is the supposed contrast between these two. Mm. Right? It's supposed mm. to be like, wow, why is this, you know, the faceless bloke from uh, Smoothie Shack Attack uh, teamed up with whiny emo robot gary newman yeah uh, when in fact they're two sides of the same shiny 80s coin yeah you know i mean in that they're two faces of the early to mid 80s home counties mm. who wouldn't have done what they did the way they did it if they'd been from anywhere else in the country you know if these if either of these acts are from leeds or plymouth or newcastle or cardiff they they're significantly different, even if they're playing essentially the same kind of music. So it's sort of meant to be a startling contrast. Uh, and, you know, the record is sort of audibly formed from two separate streams, uh, but they make sense in the same geographical historical context. It's not like, you know, Suicide featuring Dana. <laughs> <laughs> Although, how awesome would that be? Um, yeah. It is nice yeah, of nice of Newman to let Shark take top billing, but it, I think I think Gary knows it's his name that draws the eye with this, and that the minimal chart success it gets is obviously going to be purely down to Newmanoids. I don't think loads of Shack Attack fans. I mean, I don't think there were loads of Shack Attack fans, but I don't think they were being you know bought over for this one. Um, the video is almost, it's like an algorithmically created simulation of 80s pop videos. There's, there's, yeah. there's, you know, face appears on screen, check, you know, robotics to indicate modernity, check, um, yeah. statue to indicate a person's confinement, check, mm. fax machine and IBM computer to indicate modernity, check, and faint look of bemusement on musician at technology, <laughs> Check. It's all there. Why has he got a fax machine, though? I've no idea. I've no idea. We're waiting for the new menu from the sandwich shop or something. <laughs> it is strange. It is strange. I mean, maybe it's not a fax machine. Perhaps it's a vidi printer mm. or something like that. It could be. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, the, the thing from is, shut- for the day. Yeah, well, like yeah, yeah. Ra three, Queen of the South. <laughs> <laughs> but Sharp, I mean, he's kind of vaguely normal in this video. Newman, yeah. you see, previously his whited out look kind of fitted, I guess. But in this video, in combination with the bow tie, um, the white face, he just ends up looking like a, a sort of mime artist come waiter a la Billy Crystal and Spinal Tap. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, uh, so I do remember this che- this record, though. It's probably the last Newman record I remember. And I recall even in 85, it seemed weird that he was still around doing his Newman thing while Sharp concocts a very sort of um, electro-ish groove, way more modern than presumably he was allowed to do in Shaq. Mm. Um, but once you scratch the surface, it's actually a pretty horrible record because it's all made on the, as, as I think Sharp admitted later, it's all made on the Yamaha DX7. Well, I've actually yeah. had to sack people from bands I'm in because they play that instrument. It can only pretty <laughs> oh. much make horrible sounds. And that's kind of what's going on here. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was in a band with someone who had one of those ones. But luckily, he only ever left it on the setting uh, Elect Organ 1. Right. <laughs> it seemed a bit of a waste of 350 quid, but there you go. <laughs> See, the problem with this video, for me, um, apart from new, that Newman head sculpture, which appears, mm. which is it's like Lionel Richie's, mm. but made more yes. quickly. Um, <laughs> you've got Bill Sharp in a plain suit, sort of doing nothing much. Uh, and then, yeah, Newman's throwing shapes all in white with his pale face makeup. And it just looks like if there was a Zanussi advert with Randall and Hopkirk to see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I met um, Kenneth Cope's son once. Have I ever told this story on it? Um Kenneth Cope at Rudland Upkirk Deceased, his son was uh, in a band or something, and he was hanging around the pub by Melody Maker. Somebody introduced me to him. He said, oh, it's Kenneth Cope's son. I was like, oh, hello. And someone said to him, sorry, is, is your dad still alive? I can't remember. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, he's still alive. He said, it's the other bloke, Mike Pratt. He, he died a few years ago. And I said, oh, yeah. And there's a pause, and he says, so really it should be Randall Deceased and Hopkirk. Anything else to say about this? Um, yeah, I have to say this, even if it's been said before. Uh, Gary Newman is 12 days older than Gary Oldman. <laughs> Very good. I'll tell you what, I think this record is all right, which it has no right to be yeah. whatsoever. Right? I think if you listen to the whole thing, there's a really silly sounding instrumental break mm. where he's obviously just looked for the... Or, or, or created a, a, a custom setting of the DX7 yeah, yeah. to just sound as weird as possible. And he plays a little keyboard solo that sounds totally grotesque. And it's it's all right. It's one of those things... I mean, i got no particular interest in ever having anything to do with it, but if someone said, <laughs> do you want this flushed from the face of the earth? I'd say no, no. You know, like, like, uh, like badminton. <laughs> Sharp and Newman, though, just sounds like a computer shop. Mm. On the high mm. street, doesn't it? That only sells business computers and they get absolutely no trade at all apart from kids coming in asking if they've got Manic Money yet or <laughs> Gobble a Ghost. <laughs> no, we provide IT business solutions. <laughs> or can, can you repair me tape recorder? <laughs> so the following week, Change Your Mind jumped eight places to number 20 and a week later it reached its highest position, number 17. In the wake of the success of the single, Newman and Sharp will continue their collaboration throughout the rest of the 80s. And although the follow-up, New Thing from London Town, only got to number 52 in October of 1986, the follow-up to that, No More Lies, got to number 34 in February of 1988. And they signed off on their collaboration in the summer of 1989 when the LP Automatic got to number 59 in the album charts in July of that year. Sharp and Newman are a new combination. Here's an old one. Cool and the gang have been around for years. They've got a new single called Miss Led. Always searching for adventure like Pandora's box. We've already covered Cool and the Gang in Chart Music's 11, 
22 and 48. And this single, the second cut in the UK from their latest OP, Emergency, is the follow-up to Fresh, which got to number 11 in December of 1984. Also that month, three members of the band, Robert Cool Bell, JT Taylor and Dennis Thomas, were, along with Jodie Watley and Shalimar, the only Americans and black people to appear on Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas. It's entered the chart last week at number 50, and this week it's just rolled under the sliding door of the top 40, jumping 14 places to number 36. Oh, I mean, God. Look, what we have to do is quickly deal with the song. Because there's, yeah. there's always been a rock element to Cool and the Gang's music, hasn't there? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the crossover success of Michael Jackson and Prince has, has forced practically every black pop act of the era to have a go, but this is... This isn't so much beat it as tap it. <laughs> tap it, unwrap it. I, I wouldn't say it's exactly Prince's fault as such, but by then he had proved that a kind of black band could write a rock song and make it a hit. So, yes. so that definitely would have had an impact. Um, I mean, this isn't such a departure for Cool and the Gang as their early funk stuff had plenty of fuzz on it and stuff, but it's that mm. bizarre mix of kind of Jacko Prince style funk and that overdriven guitar sound that sounds like it's played on an old Casio tone. Um, it's not real mm. guitar, perhaps, but um, yeah, but this entire thing for me is all about the video and what the friggity yeah. fuck is going on. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, because I mean, I can't guide you through every single labyrinthine bit of this video, but it, but it's truly demented. It, it, it it's yeah. a really unsettling few minutes. Say what you see, Neil. Well, what do we see? Oh, God. Well, we see um, JT waking up in his house. Yeah. What happens first? Does he see the the strange white lady who's perhaps um, meant to represent cocaine? Am am I over-interpreting this? Um, I don't know. (laughs) Could be anything. She's all dressed in white. She's got a big frizz of white hair. Mm. She's an American zoo wanker, isn't she? Yeah, basically. But there is also in his house these strangely black-clad um, kind of cloaked horror movie type figures in weird masks, um, mm. sort of following them around, and then they then they end up in a very massive garden. Uh, JT and this strange lady having a dance. Uh, yeah. The the hooded figures also doing it, but which would all be normal. It's the eighties. Yeah. But then what happens is, uh, well, I can't explain what happens because it's still confusingly even now. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Obviously, look. Indiana Jones, right, 1984, 1985, massively, massively popular. For some reason, this video cuts from this fairly ordinary, or bizarre rather, um, garden scene to just strange chunks of film that Mm. seem like they've been filmed out in the desert. Like, quite expensive, you know. Um, But it's like a film that they abandoned and then recut. And there's strange characters in it who aren't in any way developed, just suddenly arrive from somewhere. There's an old fella, there's a young black girl as well. Yeah. Uh, and what's strange is that... I mean, that it's ha- an octogenarian Indiana Jones, isn't it? Yeah, basically. But but Which would be fine. What you'd be thinking in 85 watching this is, oh, this must be from the film, and this is a yes. clip from the film. Fair enough. But then, jarringly, massively jarringly, the white lady turns up in the desert. Um, yes. And she's only been in the video before. So even though halfway through the video, most viewers would be in the impression that there are two things going on, a pop video, but also a film that the song is from, suddenly mm. she turns up and your mind splits open, basically, yeah. in, a, in a really shit way. Um, and you're just thoroughly confused from then on in. Yeah, it's like mm. part thriller and part King Solomon's Minds. 
It really <laughs> reminds me of yeah. all, you know, all those yeah, very much so. 80s canon films, faux blockbusters, yeah. like Life Force and uh, Invasion yeah, yeah. USA. It's like, but this is like the one they rejected for looking too cheap. Like, no, no, no. Mm. Th- this will tarnish the Canon brand. I'll just add Romancing the Stone in there as well. It's got, <laughs> yes. I swear to God, it looks like it was filmed in a dogging spot in Swindon. <laughs> like, and, and actually lit by the headlamps of two parked Ford Fiestas. That bit where he's dancing around with that fairy woman. It's mm. like you've stumbled on a dogging scene, except uh, with one of the Cottingley fairies come to life, as opposed to <laughs> yes. Janet from Grey and it it cuts back and forth yeah with this with that and that yeah that weird unengaging incomprehensible desert drama yeah it's like raiders of the shit arc you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah and then yeah when they when finally the streams cross it's that that fairy lady in a terrible 1930s composite shot walking down an invisible staircase like from a load of rocks in front of the aged indiana jones it's mm. like yeah i've no idea what any of this is meant to be or what it's meant to relate to but it is a hideous joy it really yeah. is oh definitely definitely because i mean it, 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 one of the first shots of the video is jt looking at the mirror in his bathroom and he sees this young black girl with a kind of uh, veil on looking back at him with tears in her eyes. She reappears in the desert. And then you think, well, what's going to happen here? What actually happens is the Indiana J- uh, Jones type guy, he basically gets beaten to death, doesn't he? He kind of gets, yes. he gets kind of torn apart. Um, the kid that JT seen in the mirror escapes in a car with tears in her eyes. It's all quite dramatic. The same car mm. then pulls up outside JT's house and Cool and the gang get out. Just dressed normally, he's calling the gang. <laughs> and they go up and he's like waking up, it's all a dream. And they're like, come on, JT, it's rehearsal time, you know, pull your socks up and all that. Yeah, we've got to make cherry. Yeah. <laughs> and then they walk out. Um, well, JT walks out, you know, let, let's go, let's go to the studio then, guys. Um, we have that classic kind of calling the gang look back, don't they, at the camera. It's very, I mean, God, the massive thriller influence on this mm. of that last look that MJ gives to the camera. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the rest of the band, are they evil? Are they the... I mean, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. If anyone could disentangle this, you get an English degree for that, man. Oh, easily. <laughs> and a master's. If there's one ending that's always more satisfying than it was all a dream, it's it yeah. was all a dream, or was it? Mm. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, if, if they'd have had that old Indiana Jones's head under the pillar, <laughs> that would have finished it off perfectly, but no, they chose not to. Yeah, this video is going for thriller, but it ends up yeah. visually and spiritually much closer to Condaviti Donga, <laughs> aka Girly mm. Man, uh, aka yes. Indian Thriller. It's got that same sheer ludicrous energy of that low budget Indian cinema that just redeems everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, has, it really it has, has, doesn't it? It has the vibe of also of an Italian horror film from the time called Demons. It has that grain. Yeah. That kind of nasty graininess. I mean the the first thing that, that sprung to mind when I watched this video was he's got Bill Sharp out of Shack Attack's trousers on. <laughs> well spotted Al. S- circle of pop. That's why they pay you the big bucks. I mean, but, but <laughs> I mean, the, th- the weird thing about this video is you think that the making of it 
uh, would have become part of 80s legendary lore or something. Yeah. Yeah. But it's completely vanished. Yeah. In a, I mean, obviously, you can mm. watch the video, but when you, I don't know, you Googled the song Misled, there's no mention of what the fuck is going on here. It's just one of those no. strange, strange things that are now left to us to decipher. I hope it stays that way, to be honest with you. Yeah, there's some things that are best left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Cool and the Gang thought they just had a bit of a line in crazy 80s videos at the time because they did one for Fresh as well. And yes. it's not as weird as this, but it is not what you would think a Cool and the Gang video was going to look like. Um, <laughs> They're all dressed up as cheeses in a fridge. <laughs> yeah, the, the cheeses of England and Wales. Those yes. anthropomorphic <laughs> cunts, I hated them. Is it just me who, at the time... Uh, thought this record was called Misled, <laughs> where they hadn't heard it. Only so- it's one of those words where, like, mm. when somebody says it, you- oh right, yeah, but you see it written down. Oh, Misled, right? Yeah. yeah, they should have called the follow-up Epitome, <laughs> Epitome, yeah, yeah. That that last bit wasn't worth saying. Don't <laughs> so the following week, Misled jumped eight places to number twenty-eight, its highest position. However, the follow-up, Cherish, spent three weeks at number four in July of this year, which would be their last of their 12 top 20 hits in the UK. But Misled was used in the soundtrack of the 1986 Whoopi Goldberg film Jumping Jack Flash, which, to my knowledge, didn't feature any Indiana Jones types. Eagle Don Henley had an American hit with the Boys of Summer, and much against the better advice of a lot of the British pop publications, but certainly no surprise at the top of the pops, the Boys of Summer is a hit here. Born in Gilmer, Texas in 1947, Don Henley was a drummer in his high school band who formed a group in the early 60s called the Four Speeds who then changed their name to Felicita. In 1969, they were introduced to Kenny Rogers who encouraged them to change their name to Shaloa, got them a deal with Amos Records and helped relocate them to Los Angeles a year later. But after one LP which did fuck all, the group split up. In 1971, Henley was recruited into Linda Ronstadt's backing band, where he met the guitarist Glenn Frey. And while they were on her tour, decided to form a band, which they called the Eagles, who went on to spend the next nine years as the biggest selling American rock band up to that point. However, they were a relatively minor concern in our charts, notching up seven top 40 hits, which peaked in May of 1977 when Hotel California got to number eight. In the wake of the Eagles' breakup in 1980, Enley dipped a toe into a solo career, teaming up with his then-girlfriend Stevie Nicks on the single Lever and Lace in 1981 and getting to number three in America with Dirty Laundry in 1982, which, until now, has been his only appearance in the UK chart, getting to number 59 in February of 1983. This single 
with music written by Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, was originally offered to and turned down by Petty and immediately gobbled up by Henley, who wrote a lyric about getting owed and selling out and lifted the title from Roger Kahn's book about the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team. It's the lead cut from his latest LP, Building the Perfect Beast. It's the follow-up to I Can't Stand Still, which did nothing in the UK. It peaked last week at number five in the USA. And over here, it soared 24 places from number 63 to number 39. And here's the video, which has been directed by the French cinematographer Jean-Baptiste Mondino, who has been flown in from Paris to make his first non-French video. Fucking hell, I heard this a lot on Laser 558, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it getting, in my head, crushed together with a lot of other records and me getting confused. That was a bit of a problem as a kid. I had a mental shortcoming. It's a real problem, perhaps, for a burgeoning pop critic, that certain records become fused in my mind. So in much mm. the same way that at the time I couldn't disentangle what, I don't know, Francis Drake and did and what Walter Raleigh did. They were just yeah. one person. <laughs> um, in a similar way, like Nights in White Satin and White a Shade of Pale fused together in my mind. Uh, so, yeah. So does The Boys of Summer and Brian Adams' Summer of 69. But in all yes. but in all these cases, there are winners. Because Boys of Summer, as I've sort of grown older, it, it's become a great record to me that kind of pisses on mm. uh, Brian Adams' sort of almost spiritually identical slab of nostalgia. I'd like someone to explain why Boys of Summer is great and Summer of 69 isn't. Taylor? Yeah, well... <laughs> Well, first of all, though, Simon Bates is a real snidey cunt <laughs> at the start of this. Mm? And he says, oh, much against the better advice of a lot of the British pop publications. But certainly no surprise to Top of the Pops. The Boys of Summer is a hit here. And I'm not really sure who he's talking uh. about. Because for a start, I first, in 1993, sort of bonded with Alan Jones Melody Maker Editor, who was also Melody Maker Editor in 1985, by mentioning to him in the pub how much I love this single. Mm. And he tried to convince me that the whole album, Building the Perfect Beast, uh, is in fact a modern classic, which I soon found out was not an opinion I shared. Uh, I think it might even have placed quite high in that year's end-of-year Melody Maker Critics poll, where <laughs> albums that only the editor liked often do <laughs> somehow. Yeah, for me, this is... This is by far the best thing Don Henley ever did. And in 1985, it's one of the best things anybody did. Obviously, it's vastly more trad in every respect and completely explicable in a way that they're not, and not even remotely comparable in terms of musical invention. But for me, I class this track emotionally with uh, Running Up That Hill Mm. and Life's What You Make It Mm -hmm. as mid-'80s hits which have a very particular kind of space and power to them and whose emotional edge seems very strange because it is, in the best possible sense, mature. Mm. Um, I mean, this is adult-orientated rock, not just because it's aimed at old boomers, but because the song will only really reveal itself 100% to an adult. Yeah. Mm. Be- mm. Even though it's written in the, the lyrical and musical uh jargon and and language of a dumb young man um because as a kid you hear this and you're like oh yeah, yeah i get it yeah irretrievable loss i understand yeah, yeah, yeah. but you don't and there's a really genuine feeling in this song which only lights up when you're ready there's a sort of a like a mortal pain to it and with 
an instinctive recognition of its own meaninglessness, which is how it can be expressed in such trashy terms and still mean something. Um, and I don't think that's down to any genius on the part of Don Henley or indeed the you know the the heartbreaker who, who wrote it. I I think he just you know he struck oil while he was digging for a bone. But I think this justifies the existence of everyone involved with it eternally, as far as I'm concerned. There's just something about this record over and above what it really is. You know what I mean? There's something about it that is uh, that just there's a sort of uh, just emotional quality to this just that has nothing to do with what's in the grooves you can just just feel it coming off mm. coming off the recording somehow i think this is one of the 10 best singles of at least the mid 80s if not of the whole 80s mm. good lord i mean as simon said in a previous chart music 1985 is the year when the dinosaurs came roaring back and he was referring to live aid of course mm. but this is the time when all those 70s bands and artists finally seemed to get yeah, a grip yeah. on the technology of the mid-80s, you know, using music videos and, you know, just harnessing the, the, the recording technology and, and and having big hits with it. Big hits that are not shit. Yeah, and they're not making an issue of it or making it apparent that they're struggling with it or sulking about it, really, which mm. tends to be what you hear late 70s, early 80s um, yeah. with their uses of technology. There's a kind of sulkiness or a kind of show-offiness, whereas this is natural and fluid. It doesn't feel like anything's being done to make Don Henley suddenly current again. It's just mm. a really beautiful song, um, yeah. where normally you get beautiful songs in the mid-'80s, and dis- they, they come through despite their production. This comes across, I think, partly because of the production, yeah. uh, which is an odd thing to say for a 1985 record, but I couldn't imagine it any better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a nice enough video. It's a nice enough video, black and white, for that retro vibe. Don't exactly know what's going on, but vague hints of a kind of, yeah, of of the same kind of imagery in a way that Brian Adams used um, in Summer of Six. I'm sorry to keep reminding you of a shit record in the midst of talking about a great record. Mm -hmm. Um, But this this goes to show the difference. Retrograde imagery attached to a shit song, appalling. Retrograde imagery attached to a great song. Really, really moving. It's a really good video. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a it's a French person's idea of California, mm, yeah. isn't mm. it? Which is, I think, why it works because it's the same sort of weird, sort of part idealized and part sort of dystopian vision of of uh, the emptiness of California, which is uh, uh, which you get a bit of in the record as well. Are we even going to talk about the deadhead sticker on the Cadillac? Which is supposed to be one of the most profound lines in in all of pop music. Yeah, it's not, is it? But well, not to us. It's not. <laughs> well, that's because it's not. I mean, if I'd seen a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, it would be, oh fucking hell, look at that American car. It's fucking brilliant. Oh, hmm. who's who's driving it? Boss yeah. Hog. <laughs> I once got the connotation that it was about yuppieism and selling out your principles and stuff. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, he, he better get used to it. I mean, you know, <laughs> one day soon Boris Johnson's going to turn up in an Iron Maiden t-shirt. You know what I mean? It's just, there's, <laughs> yes. there's, there's no end to this now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the following week, the boys of summer soared another 17 places to number 22. And two weeks later, it got to number 12, its highest position. 
In September, the video won four MTV awards, including Video of the Year, and John baptiste Mondino went on to direct the videos for Open Your Heart by Madonna, Woodbees by Scritti Polite, I Wish You Heaven by Prince, and Manchild by Nena Cherry. The follow-up, All She Wants To Do Is Dance, failed to chart in the UK, and the only other sorty bit of Top 40 action he got was in July of 1998, when the Boys of Summer got to number 12 again. And Josh Paul, who played the young lad in the video, would become the bassist of Suicidal Tendencies in 1996. <laughs> Next week, for some reason, the section was renamed Top of the Pops Chartbusters, but that, that only lasted for a week. And <laughs> the Breakers section lived on right the way through to March of 1994. Even in 1985, you couldn't get away with using the term Chartbuster. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they introduce it with a little animation of a, a guy in stack eels and a, in glitter flares. With a... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing her trial separation from Bates, stands at the back of the studio as she tells us that if we have taste, we're aware that the next act has put out, quote, the best album around, and says that the next track is a cut from it. The camera swings round to reveal How Soon Is Now by The Smiths. We've chanced across the Smiths a time or two on chart music and this, officially their fifth single, started life as a 15-minute track which was chopped down to just under seven minutes and slated as a future single. But when Jeff Travis of their label Rough Trade heard it, he believed it didn't sound smithy enough and relegated it to the B-side of the 12-inch version of William It Was Really Nothing, which came out in August of 1984 and got to number 17 in September. However, How Soon Is Now was rescued from its flipside obscurity and rinsed to death throughout the tail end of 1984 by the Radio 1 night shift, including Janice Long, and it was put on Hatful of Hollow, the Smiths' compilation which came out in November of that year. In the same month, it was put out as a single in America on Sire Records, which featured archive film of an old factory and the sort of girl no Smiths fan would ever get off with dancing about, but it failed to catch on over there. Even though the band have put out their second LP, Meet His Murder, three days ago, which doesn't feature this song, Janice, <laughs> How Soon Is Now has been edited down to single length and released last month, and this week it's up nine places from number 35 to number 24. Oh, 
Janice, she fucking loves this shit, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's beside herself. She punches <laughs> the air with both hands, and it looks like she's about to go, fucking yes, have yeah. it, and then just barge her way through the kids and get up the front. Yeah, she's beside herself, perhaps to a point beyond charming, but that's mm. the Smiths for you. Isn't it? Mm, yeah, no, that's exactly it, and it kind of slightly put me off, actually, uh, Janice. Uh, seeing that <laughs> you know this is what this is the original spore the the primary ancestral gene pool of the english rock defense league right here um there's been i mean there's been a lot of debate recently for a lot of us really about how all of us deal with music or, or great art that's made by horrible people and i've seen a lot of my friends go through sort of twists and torsions and traumas having to strike morrissey and the smiths out of their listening a bit because of recent supposed revelations about his politics. But to me, he was always hiding in plain sight. He was always sort of part frontman, part Farage. And but perhaps because, I don't know, you know, a frontman's important. They negotiate your relationship with the band. The frontman's ultimately what changes cognizance of a band to, to love, but can also just as easily turn admiration into loathing. And I've always had sort of big, massive problems with Morrissey that have stopped me loving really anything he's been involved with, especially the Smiths, which was odd in a sense in 85, because in 84, I, I quite liked the Smiths. I quite liked the early singles. I, I think I actually bought um, What Difference Does It Make? Um, mm. You know, uh, but I, I think what happens is, in 85, I start getting this sense of double kind of rejection from his music. It's like being invited to a party and where you realise that once you've been invited, you've only been invited to be humiliated in a sense. Anyone young, teenage and alienated uh, from notions of modernity as well as masculinity is going to find some resonance in the Smith's music. But it became pretty clear soon that that alienation that he felt was partly down to the likes of me being in the country as well and that alienation and longing you felt couldn't really be be salved or saved by um by the smiths of course this is all after the event it's only later that i find out you know that aged 18 morris is writing letters to friends saying that he dislikes pakistan is immensely because they smell and all of that um yeah. and at the time you know what he offers is pro-animal rights and it's anti-royal and it's anti-tory this kind of outward leftism but with a truly truly conservative heart fearful of the future and fearful of change and that really is that's the dna of indie rock um so yeah. you know i mean i can't i i cannot deny that the prophetic nature of this record and just how much it influenced and uh, i mean how much the smiths influenced rather but i kind of wish in a sense uh, white people would fix themselves up a bit i mean all, all my life i've been making allowances for the shit music my white friends are into um and no artist is you're my pale mates yeah sorry <laughs> but no artist has presented this dichotomy to me more than morrissey virtually all my white friends like him or liked him um i've had major problems with him from the off my sister's mates were big fans so early singles did make it into my house um mm. and I, so i came to this performance to watching this performance thinking oh maybe it'll be a reminder what appealed but actually it was a kind of instant reminder of what i immediately started hating about morrissey and the Smiths, you know, it, it, when I finally got to write about the Smiths, which wasn't until about 1999, I said, there's something about the Smiths that still has an unhealthy hold over people you'd love to love, but get the facts straight. The Smiths were about nostalgia. They were about destroying any black trace in pop. And when they emerged, they were pretty much a rights for whites insistence that nothing since punk had mattered. 
I was writing about the song Panic, and I said it was a letter to Melody Maker spun into a song, and that Morrissey is a Ted fixated pre-immigration fantasizing granny of a man. Um, <laughs> the band laying the groundwork of Morrow's retrospect that Lad Rock would later find its spiritual motivation. I encourage people to blame and shame them every chance you get. Now, I realize now that that might be unfair to Johnny Marr, um, mm. you know, uh, but not much, I suspect. I remember him in 84 slagging off things like Earth, Wind and & Fire and Chic and Prince because for bands like the Smiths, the DJs that play black music and the press that support them and consequently the music culture that grows up around them, black music is something they wish had stopped back in the 60s. Mm. Um, you know, and then I heard and sort of read deeper and I realised that this band, the Smiths, simply weren't on earth for me. In fact, they were sort of eyeing the likes of me with suspicion and faint repellence every time I even approached. So by the time I knew that Morrissey hated rap and hated black pop and, you know, by the time of Asian rut and Bengali and platforms and all that, I knew that his, his dreams didn't include me um, and that me and my kind were a problem and kind of an obstacle in his vision of English pop progress or regress and and he all he loved was these sanctified suede heads and all this poor doomed trash that kind of populated his perspective mm. and marked the limits of his compassion and it's all summed up in this performance with a single element that perhaps i'm overextending when i'm thinking about it but i absolutely interpret as being central you know the moment when he sings i am human and i need to be loved just like everyone everybody else does mm. and he machine guns the crowd yes i'm sure fans saw that as great because they'd like to machine gun their schoolmates as well. And it's no surprise to me later on in my career when whenever I interviewed an American metal band, they fucking loved Morrissey and the Smiths. Mm. Um, he appealed to that. Really? Quite, oh, they love him. They absolutely, all of them absolutely loved him because they appealed to that kind of wounded, uh, uh, you know, macho thing and self-pity. But that but to me reveals everything. That machine gun gesture. He holds modern multicultural Britain in contempt and he wants everything to return to a time when the white working class were only compromised by the black working class, the Afro-Caribbean working class, because he sees a worth in their old pop culture. He can't see any worth in the likes of me. And he doesn't like it when he feels that black culture is getting too dominant. And so that mindset for me, that UKIP EDL almost mindset, um, I think it, you know, it dominated the music press and the media for far too long. This notion that there was this superficial black pop influenced uh, music that underneath which all this white kind of regression should be focused on instead. It's really, really damaging. And actually, I remember this song. Of course, we all remember this song because we've heard it too many fucking times. But I don't like it. I think it's rubbish. I think... Um, it's got no joy or animation. It's just smuggery. And the more I hear Morrissey, the more he just sounds like Scylla Black yawning. Um, <laughs> so I hate him so much. I can't even tell if I like his performance because I just see a big racist cunt on the stage. Yeah. Uh, this Peter Pan of Welshmerts. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, I mourn the victory of classic guitar rock in Manchester to a certain extent because there were much more interesting things going on in Manchester in the decade of the 80s. Yeah. And Morrissey yeah, kind of trailblazed that campaign. I'll concede that the Smiths aren't entirely kindling. I mean, for the first few singles, when the mystery was still intact and he hadn't ruined it with his bullshit, I was kind of in love. But now, I, w I mean, I would argue, if you like Stephen the Chinese or a subspecies Morrissey, you're a racist cunt. 
simple as. The only thing I applaud is the kind of honesty of it, that injured regret, that post-colonial revulsion of his music is really close to White England's heartbeat in a lot of ways. Um, but I, for, not for me. And, and they're a band who actually get the worse the further away I get from them. I mean, that machine gunning thing, mm. it's trying to be all heroic and make a gesture, but he just reminds me of Private Pike whenever he gets to borrow the Tommy gun. His dad's <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, and when he, well, yeah, when he draws uh, mm. white lines on his uh, suit, yeah, yes. to be a fifth columnist. <laughs> it's out of Billy Liar. He thinks it's like, he's trying to do out of Billy Liar, is what yeah. he's doing. Um, but yeah, mm. it, I, well, in defence of Johnny Marr, I would be astonished if you'd ever heard him slag off Chic. Mm. Johnny Marr's guitar playing on the early good Smiths records is uh, 50% uh, Birds and 50% Nile Rodgers. But mm. Mm. the in terms of Morrissey, yeah, it's really strange how... Do you remember how loads of people refused to believe that he could possibly be a racist? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Or, or because he didn't like the royal family. It's like people have this weird idea that if someone is, like, righteously left-wing on, you know, five topics, they can't be foul on another, you know. Mm. Mm. If you're looking for reasons why people still give Morris a chance, you won't find them in this performance because mm. this performance is totally unremarkable. And it's weird because you'd think that a band that did have a strong image and were performing... I still think one of their most powerful and unusual records would dominate this episode and it would be the thing you came away remembering. But it's almost an afterthought, right? There's no sense of occasion. Um, yeah. As previous Smith's appearances, of course, they were smashing through the glass ceiling placed over white rock bands. Yes. <laughs> confounding that conspiracy to only allow black artists on top of the pops. But now that shock has, has gone. And Morrissey no longer feels the need to communicate anything directly to the camera. Mm. Right? It's like his basic presence is supposed to be startling in itself, mm. and it's not. You just say, oh, stop licking your lips, man. You know, yeah, here he is again. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no sense of this being an event or disruptive in any way. People at home yeah. will have been watching this, like people who, who didn't follow the charts or whatever, didn't know who these people were. They'd just think, oh, look, it's a watered-down killing joke. Because there's no difference to most <laughs> yeah, of the audience. Yeah. You know, it's a doomy record. It's got big guitars and walloping drums and a weirdo singer wailing. It's all the same, you know. But that one had a bit of guts to it. And it, it shouldn't have been that way. I think it's a, a bit of a betrayal of one of their best tracks. But, yeah, it, it struck me a few years back. You can draw a line in Morris's career on one side of which he's objectively a really good lyricist. And on the other... His lyrics are facile and, and frivolous and not half as funny as they're meant to be. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, that line isn't drawn in 2002 or 1996. It's in 1984, <laughs> like months after the Smiths got started. And the deterioration seemed to have happened almost immediately at the precise moment he became successful. Because mm. we know that those that first batch of Smith songs came out of his old notebooks and they were mostly written when he was a nobody. And I still think those lyrics are startlingly sharp and evocative and skillful. This charming man is 
possibly one of the most underrated lyrics I can think of. It's elegantly concise, and there's a whole screenplay in there with defined characters and a, an intriguing scenario and a dramatic dilemma. And it's like 90 minutes of, of queer cinema compressed into, I think, 14 lines with a mm. chorus that's just got a catchy lyrical hook that doesn't advance the plot at all. And that's phenomenal songwriting. And a lot of the stuff from the Smiths' first year is not as good as that, but it shares a lot of the same qualities and it's authentically daring and, and, and unique. And, and then something happens. And afterwards, almost everything is just this dashed off, silly ass froth. You know. Yeah, well, he, he's too busy thinking about things to say for his interviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it happened at the precise moment he used up his pre-fame lyrics and began writing as a successful pop musician yeah. and a minor star. Instantly he went to shit. And it was this bloke who spent his whole adolescence believing that fame was his only salvation. And it turned out to be the worst thing that could possibly have happened to him. Like, in terms of his own creativity. Maybe in terms of his own happiness, it helped. I don't know. Mm. But his happiness didn't seem to do very much for him in terms of not being a cunt, you know. Um, <laughs> and I think that's one of the most intriguing and under-discussed aspects of, of the Smiths. The, the way that almost immediately he went off a cliff in terms of the quality of what he came up with. And nobody noticed this in the 80s because this no. spell had been cast. Mm, and yes. he'd go like, oh, no, no, I know how Joan of Arc felt. And I was like, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> isn't that amazing? He said he knew how Joan of Arc felt when she had a Walkman on. And oh, is that, that, what? That's shit. Yeah. That's yeah. fucking terrible. It's like if you want to listen to <laughs> to humorous very English, slightly whimsical. Listen to Half Man Half Biscuit. They're yes. fucking brilliant. And then go and listen to Murray. Oh, oh, no, how Joan of Arc. It's fuck off. It's <laughs> wasting my time. Which side of that divide does this one come under then, Taylor? Is this when he's fallen off? I don't know. There's hardly any lyrics in it, is it? It's just a, just a verse repeated. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think this is probably uh, this is probably post drop off because yeah, it's there's there's almost nothing on mm. it, is there? It's just a bit of wailing in What you're really listening to is Johnny Marr just having a ball. Yeah, yeah. It's the sound of this record. There's no denying that when you first heard this on the radio, the initial sound of it is amazing. But yes. it, it kind of then doesn't do enough for me. I like no. that sound, don't get me wrong, but it just kind of hangs there and doesn't move anywhere. So that's kind of why I started having problems with this record. It took me ages to realise this was a Smith song. Oh, yeah. It, uh, for me, it doesn't sound like one. You know, no. I was used to a certain sound from them, and this was just a bit yeah. of a step up and a bit of a step beyond. Um, yeah. So I was captivated by the sound, but yeah, uh, not him or his lyrics. And it took me even longer to realise that Morrissey wasn't singing I Am The Sun In The Air, S-U-N-A-I-R. Yeah, right, yeah. It sounds a bit hippie. <laughs> a lot of that flatness is just the 80s, though. Right. If you listen to a lot of the guitar effects and it's like the meowing noise and all of that, it's <laughs> really it's the stuff that Jimmy Page was doing on Led Zeppelin too. You know, it's the same things that he's doing mm-hmm. on the guitar. Uh, but on that supposed hoary dinosaur album, those noises sound live and clear and, and, and exciting and hard to ignore. Whereas on this zippy post-punk classic it's a little bit of a sludge but it's it's got those 80s drums on it as well Mm, like the the door of a meat freezer slamming shut (laughs) um it's the same because it is i think this is a great track 
Morrissey notwithstanding, but it really yeah. could have been a lot better if it had been made at almost any other point in the history of recording technology. <laughs> it would sound just an awful lot better than this. The Smiths, with someone else's lead singer, yeah. how would they have got on? Because to me, Morrissey was always the sticking point. A lot of the Smith songs, I kind of like them, but it's just like, oh, the lead singer's a twat. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, if you want to, if you want a laugh um, and a little bit of Schadenfreude, watch that biopic of Morrissey that came out a few years ago, right? Have you ever <laughs> right. seen yeah, it? No, it's I called, haven't, no. It's called England is Mine. And I'm a big fan of mortifying yeah, rock yeah. star biopics. Uh, so... <laughs> I watched it for kicks, and it, it is a scream. It's a, all about his pre-Smith's life, mm. like that action-packed thrill ride that's obviously <laughs> going to make a great movie. And there's no Smith's music allowed in it, mm. and <laughs> nobody looks like anybody they're supposed to look like. And like all modern stuff set in the 70s, the people in it don't look like they're from the 70s. They look like they're in pulp, mm. um, <laughs> except that half of them are obviously... Uh, muscly because they go to the gym because they're from the 21st century just unlike <laughs> anyone in the 70s except professional <laughs> sportsmen and gangsters enforcers and some gay men so it's just all these blokes in like retro purple wing collar shirts trying to conceal these grapefruit biceps uh, but it's a a wonderful film I like a wonderful piece of shit it's almost on a par with summer dreams the story of the beach boys and oh, uh, yeah. Daydream Believers, The Monkey's Story, which are my two favourite biopic catastrophes. Right, the first five minutes of this film, he's in his room with his mate in specs, and she picks up a book about the Moors murderers, which happens to be lying around, and holds it up and says, do you ever think it might have been us buried in the dirt? (laughs) (laughs) He sat there reading his 70s music paper from that week, and it's all yellow, because it... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he got it out of someone's collection. Uh, then you've got people in what's meant to be a 70s rock club in Manchester, and they go up the bar and ask for a beer, and they give them a green <laughs> bottle of Bex. <laughs> it's like, no, you weren't in Manchester <laughs> in the 70s. Right? Oh, and you know his mate, um, Linda Sterling, who in real life was a, a militantly unglamorous feminist punk. Uh, in this film, she becomes a sexy goth chick. It's right. so funny. She does. <laughs> I, if you imagine what this film would be like, right, it's like that, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he's straight in it. That's the other thing. Fuck. Uh. This is the film that finally quashes those ugly rumours. Um, <laughs> all the sexy ladies are after him because he's a shy individual, which, you know, as we all know, is what happens in real life. Mm. And yeah, oh, God, yeah. Knocking him off with your stick, mate. <laughs> his boss comes up to him at one point and says, why can't you be more like everyone else? Mm. And Morrissey just does a, a meaningful pause and stares at him. <laughs> oh, and he's got a big Oscar Wilde poster on his wall. Right? Yeah. I do not believe they sold those in 1978. Right? I think all you could get was uh, Farrah Fawcett in a leotard mm. and that tennis girl scratching her arm. Yes. Right? Yeah, no, like, and, the, the, and the whole thing is narrated in by him or it's supposed to be him right in his voice like uh like it's his writings or his personal diaries you know which it isn't i mean there's nothing about pakistanis in there for a start (laughs) but it's it's like offcuts from adrian mole (laughs) he's going i am so persecuted when will the world recognize my genius and it's obviously (laughs) someone writing what they think morris would have said and i loved it Partly because he 
was horrified by it. Mm. <laughs> As I, it's obvious when you watch you think Morrissey was, would hate this. Yeah, he, he thought it was appalling and tried to block it and failed. And <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Because really, it's just a film about a ten-a-penny teenage dickhead. Mm. <laughs> and I hope somebody somewhere saw that. And the penny finally dropped. <laughs> so the following week, how soon is now nipped up two places to number 24, its highest position. Meanwhile, Meet His Murder entered the LP chart at number one, staying there for a week and acting as the bridge between Born in the USA and No Jacket Required. And a week later, they swept the board in the 1985 NME Readers Poll, because of course they would. The follow-up, Shakespeare's Sister, got to number 26 in April, and although the next single, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, only got to number 49 in July, they closed out the year with the boy with the thorn in his side getting to number 23 in October. Fucking hell. 1985, the biggest year of their career, and those shit chart returns. But the thing is, they thought of themselves as a singles band, and they never were. They never were. I mean, you can see, by the way, they mishandled this track, right? Putting it out on a a 12-inch extra track, and then on the compilation album, and then putting it out as the lead-off single for the next album, which it wasn't on. It's it's farcical. It's farcical. Would Blondie (laughs) have done something like that? No. Would the Rolling Stones have done? No. It's just they they weren't a singles band and they could never accept that. They had singles like That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore and mm. and Shakespeare's Sister. It's like, but what do you think you're doing? Do you think this is going to be number one? No. <laughs> they couldn't even pick their own songs that should have been singles. It's it's really weird. You know, if the Smiths were still going now, you know that, that thing where they have old films? Yeah. Stills from old films on the covers of the singles. Who would they be doing by now? Uh, Chuck Norris. Yeah. <laughs> Steven Seagal or something. Uh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Rita Sue and Bob too. <laughs> That's probably really accurate, actually, Al, yeah. Tim Roffin made in Britain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah or someone yeah. sexy out of Romper Stomper, you know. Yes. <laughs> because the, the whole issue of racial violence it's it just pales next to morris's own wank fantasies you know. <laughs> putting the oi in poignancy I'm Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monk. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia page? <laughs> it's good to practice. Yeah. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great If question. you say he was my age, I'm gonna <laughs> fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. <laughs> Available on all your podcast apps. That's not right. Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin' or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can tell she's a Smiths fan. It's Valentine's Day. She's gone. At the Smiths and how soon is now? Wonderful. Let's have a look at the charts. 40. This week at 40, the limit. Say yeah. It's a chart entry for Don Henley, The Boys of Summer at 39. Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas at 38. Grandmaster and Melly Mel at 37 with Step Off. A chart entry at 36, Cool in the Gang, Misled. Chaka Khan's at 35 with This Is My Night. Up to 34, Eugene Wilde and Personality. Wham, Last Christmas, Everything She Wants is at 33. And at 32, Ghostbusters, Ray Parker Jr., George Benson's climbing with 2020 to 31. Can I from Kashmir at 30? Imagination fast at 29 with Thank You, My Love. And the highest chart entry this week at 28, Change Your Mind, Sharpen Newman. Amy Stewart's Friends is at 27. Up to 26, it's The Smiths and How Soon Is Now. 25, Yamo Be There, James Ingram. And great news, Killing Joke up to 24, Love Like Blood. Madonna's hanging on in there at 23 with Like a Virgin. We Belong from Pat Benatar at 22. 21, This House by Big Sound Authority. And Chicago with You're the Inspiration up to 20. Highest climber of the week, it's Dead or Alive. You spin me round at number 19. Since yesterday, Strawberry Switchblade, 18. At 17, Night Shift, The Commodores. Tears for Fears with Shout down to 16. Up to 15, Billy Ocean and Loverboy. And at 14, it's Mr. Bowie, This Is Not America. Colorfield, Thinking of You at number 13 this week. Phil Collins, The Studio, stays at 12. Same as last week for Brian Adams, Run To You at number 11. So the ups, downs and the non-movers in the chart this week. The camera cuts back to a reunited Long and Bates and it looks as if Long has forced Bates to dance with her to the Smiths. Before we cut to the chart rundown from 40 to 11, which by this point has been lumped into one. Bad idea. Yeah, yeah. goes on for far too long. This is the beginning of the, the charts don't mean shit anymore attitude of Top of the Pops, isn't it? Yeah, because once the charts start dragging, once you fuck up that rundown, yeah. you, it's going to get ditched, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, by this point, everything's professional, but the only things that jumped out at me were Bates calling it Grandmaster and Melly Mel. Yeah. Dickhead. Cool. And uh, a still of imagination, just looking straight and boring. They're not wearing golden nappies anymore, and that's wrong, man. They look pissed off. They look bored with their new direction. Yeah, the 80s have turned to shit in front of us. <laughs> yeah, but you've got a picture of uh, The Limit, who look yes. like a boys' school master and pupil who've eloped, disguised yes. <laughs> as the Foster Brothers' mm, summer mm. sale. Uh, uh, James Ingram... Um, looking yeah. like he's just sat down on a syringe full of fentanyl. 
Uh, and that picture of Phil Collins, the album cover picture of Phil yeah. Collins, gazing at you imploringly through the oven door. Yes. Oh, please turn it down. Yeah. No, no. Oh, and um, Tears for Fears, like, say for Beeblebrock's appearing on the front of a knitting pattern. Yes. But the, the, the one that I liked the most was the picture of Killing Joke, because if you look closely, Jazz Coleman is at the back of that picture looking for all the world... Like Simon Bates, yes, things had panned out slightly mm. differently. <laughs> you can't have a close look. That is bizarre, but also bizarre. I mean, you think for such a high-end, multi-million blockbuster product as Ghostbusters, they'd find a better shot of Ray Parker Jr. with the Ghostbusters. You know what I mean? Than the slightly, it, it looks like some sort of damaged lettrist document from the nineteen fifties or something. <laughs> the shot of. Yeah. Uh, the shot of Ray Parker with, with, with the Ghostbusters. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a really crap um, stag do photo, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it's what would now yeah. be called a screen grab, but from the days <laughs> yeah. where yeah, yeah, yeah. you literally had to put a camera in front of a TV. And of course, by this point, we're also treated to that fucking awful soft rock version of Yellow Pearl. Yeah. With a fucking electric guitar, man. It's horrible. I bet Midge was upset by that. <laughs> All right, we've reached the top of the pile. This is Top of the Pops Video Top 10. And up to 10, it's a great video from Kirsty McCall and New England. If there's one voice I can't stand, it's Billy Braggs. It's not Kirsty McCall, it's Billy Braggs. Sexuality remains to me the most embarrassing song ever made. A jump at really for out of noise. They got one place to number nine with close to the edit. A what? A job head. Do you know what that is, Al? Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> ah, I bought this on 7-inch. Loved it. The future. I always thought that was Paulie Yates. Oh, really? And I was wrong. It's actually Anne Dudley of Art of Noise. One of the pop craze youngsters, Daniel Griffiths, pointed that out to me uh, just now. I wish this was the other video where the creepy little girl makes the middle-aged bloke smash up the musical instruments with chainsaws and power tools. Oh, yeah. That was much better. It's so fucking dated now, but at the time it really did sound like the future. Oh, God, yeah. Because you could see the yes. collage of it. Yes, we're all waiting for the album and a major tour. It's Russ Abbott and Hate and Atmosphere. I feel sorry for Russ here. He's the butt of their jokes and it feels mean. Walk away in silence. <laughs> From Russ Abbott to the sublime Howard Jones, up 11 places with Things Can Only Get Better to number seven. That hair looks wrong on Howard Jones, man. His, his forehead's too high. This is not sublime, as Simon Bates called no. it. No! <laughs> yeah, D-Ream, the usurpers. There's winners and losers in this game. But yeah, for further discussion, Simon Bates' concept of the sublime. It's one of those gig vids where the main artist legs it around the stage, not like some circus master of rock and roll chaos, but like a line manager performing a performance evaluation. Well, it's amazing that this week's Wally Prince can make such good records. He's down to six with 1999 Bodyguards. Fuck off. Morrissey is a studying cool, but Prince is a Wally. That's indie psychosis. One thing's for sure, foreigner don't need blankets over their heads. They're at number five, having had a really good run so far with I Want to Know What Love Is. They do need blankets <laughs> over their heads. Or pillows. And the best bottom in the charts, Bruce Springsteen of Four, Dancing in the Dark. He's up. Oh, God, we get loads of this. Mm-hmm. 
It's my favourite Springsteen, actually. It's a, I think it's an amazing song. Is it? Typically awful dancing and typically triumphalist video belying the darkness of the song, but I quite like this one. Yeah. By dancing, he means shagging. <laughs> and by gun, he means his dick. <laughs> Barry White explained that to me. <laughs> Ashford and Simpson, they're singing about their own relationship and they're up one place to number three. Their song's called Solid. Oh, street punk sucks. This is a tune, this is. It is a tune. They're singing about their own relationship. Yeah, yes. God preserve us from two people singing about their own relationship. It's one of the greats, this. My best friend Juliet listened to this song so much morning and night that one day she woke up convinced she'd wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> he does look like Barry White after gastric band surgery, doesn't he? <laughs> A couple of King were from my school, and I, I no, I imagined that they played my school, um, but they didn't. It was it was it was like a couple of their relatives or something. We had an assembly where they it was told, yeah, these know the people in King, and now they're going to play <laughs> you a gig. They were fucking awful. <laughs> I'll tell you what, my heart yearns for now: them to be arrested for defacing those rocks. <laughs> Let's wheel back and come forward on a couple of things. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the, the references to Prince, man, fucking disgusting. Uh-huh. But the previous Monday, BBC One had broadcast the British Record Industry Awards featuring Prince and his bodyguard, Chick Huntsbury. So that's what that's all about. Oh, uh, I see. But yeah, I thank see. fuck Simon's not on Is this it? episode. He'd have gone fucking berserk at that. Well, also, why, why give us 30 seconds of Howard Jones and about three seconds of Prince? I know, that's wrong. Bang out of order. Howard Jones, by the way, prefiguring the entire career of Coldplay there. Mm. <laughs> what we're seeing here is that it, it kind of started happening every year, this post-Christmas bounce for records from the previous year. Yes. I mean, these are records from 84, you know, and I, like Solid, Dancing in the Dark, and The King one are all 84 records, but they've got this... Co- oh, they know. There's fuck all to buy, basically. So, because yeah. there's no other records to buy, these things, these things are still alive and, and kind of there. That's King and Lovett Bride at number two. And this week at number one, in fact, still at number one, it's Elaine Page, Barbara Dixon and... Tim Rice's lovely song from Chess. We cut back to Long and Bates, dancing to Love and Pride in an office party styler, before lovingly nuzzling together as they introduce this week's number one, I Know Him So Well, by Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon. Formed in the pulsating brain of Tim Rice in 1979, Chess was a musical based on a tournament between two grandmasters at the height of the Cold War. As with Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technical and Dreamcoat and Evita, Rice intended to work on the musical with his oppo, Andrew Lloyd Webber, but he was too busy working on Cats. But when his producer pointed out that Benny and Bjorn of ABBA were dossing about looking for something to do after they'd finished The Visitors, ABBA's final LP, he met up with them in Stockholm in November of 1981 and they agreed to collaborate. 
The three of them spent 1982 exchanging ideas and demos via mail, and when ABBA finally wound down in 1983, they went full steam ahead. As with Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar, it was decided to release the soundtrack LP well in advance of the actual stage show in order to test the material and raise money for the production. And Rice cast Barbara Dixon, the January-February hitmaker who appeared in Chart Music's 29 and 48 in the role of Florence, the Russian bloke's missus, and Elaine Page, best known at the time for getting Memre to number 6 in July of 1981 as Svetlana his mistress. This is the follow-up, of sorts, to One Night in Bangkok by Murray Head, which got to number 12 last December, and is a direct nick by Bjorn and Bennett of the chorus of I Am An A, the comedy number that ABBA used in the set of their 1977 world tour in order to introduce themselves. It crept in at number 79 in the last chart of 1984, then jumped 16 places to number 63, then 29 places to number 34, and after appearance on top of the pop soared another 28 places to number six and last week it rid the number one spot of the musk of i want to know what love is by foreigner and is at its second week at the vanguard of the hip parade yeah introduced by simon bates as tim rice's lovely song mm, Fucking yeah hell. yeah i mean yeah, yeah. tim rice's contribution to this song is probably Tim Rice's most worthwhile contribution to anything ever. Um, certainly, I'm not aware of him ever writing another line as quietly profound as no one in your life is with you constantly. No one is completely on your side. But everyone knows the two men who are mostly responsible for this song. And everyone knows the two women who should be singing it. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's it. Of course this is the lost ABBA number one. And the consolation is that most probably, even if ABBA had still existed, it would still have had the same perspex piano sounds and thudding 80s drums on it because they (laughs) would have moved with the times for better or Mm. for worse. But this is still a fantastically well-written song let down only by the stains from its position in history and British culture, its Mm. historical position and its cultural position. So you can wince at the staginess of the delivery and you can cringe at the the soft-focused production and you can understand this purely as West End kitsch if you want because it sort of is. But as a song, it's got a quality and a worth and it, it could have sounded very different had it been given mm. the treatment it deserved. There's Obviously, there's a, a very direct line from certain late-period ABBA songs to this, and it's tempting yeah. to look back at that. Like, songs like Slipping Through My Fingers and I Let The Music Speak uh, and think, okay, well, that's them embarking on the dog-shit-studded road to chess. Which, I mean, chess, after all, what is chess if not a more sedate Rocky for? Um, and <laughs> you can allow that to weaken that album music in retrospect, but I think, in fact, it makes more sense to see it the other way, that that stage musical atmosphere got a little bit out of control and just made Bjorn and Benny's mid-80s music weaker than it could and should have been. But they were 40, Bjorn and Benny, and in 1985, there was no clear space in pop for blokes of 40 who were instinctively commercial in their artistic Mm. vision. All you could do was become professional songwriters writing for teenage singers as though you were thinking teenage thoughts. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's really not what they did. 
So they had to peel off into musicals. You know, they weren't self-serious artists who were going to start making serious music, mm. and they weren't heritage rockers. So you know, in a way, it makes perfect sense for them to go yeah. in this direction. It's quite, it's the tenth Abba number one in disguise, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But I mean, but crucially, um, I mean, beyond the craft of it, which is, I mean, it's a really well written song, you realise just how important Agnetha and Frieda's accents were in yes. those old records, in in exoticising the relationships they portrayed. And there's just something about the, the Swedish accent that adds extra poignancy with certain words. But now these words are in British mouths, and you're right, they're not bad words for Tim Rice, but now that those words are in British mouths, we just get a, a, a really quite a good show tune, really. Um, yes. But when I think about, you know, Page's he needs a little bit more than me, more security, and, and Dixon's he needs his fantasy and freedom, that could be so moving if yeah. it was Agnetha and then then Frieda. This is really just two troopers knocking it out. And yeah. it's given a really, really dull arrangement that I suspect, I mean, it, it, even if, if ABBA had Stay Together and were doing this song, I don't know. There was something about ABBA Productions that was always interesting and I suspect might have even sustained them through the grim sonic recesses of 1985 and made this more interesting than it ends up sounding. Um, but, I mean, at the time, I hated it because I was young and I didn't know anyone yeah. who liked it. Oh, cool. You know, and I, and I remember kind of like... I remember listening, I think I was listening to, I wasn't deliberately listening to, but you know, as you, as you just had Radio 1 on constantly. Um, I was listening to Paul Gambaccini's show, I think, uh, that he co-hosted with Tim Rice, uh, when this hit number one, and, and Paul Gambaccini cut into a record saying, this is the first time we've ever had a number one artist presenting a show as well. Um, but really, you know, in this arrangement, it's as... I would have put it at that age mentally in exactly the same place as Don't Cry For Me Argentina. It's yeah. one of those Radio 2 records that mm. makes it into the pop charts. And, and I mean, in retrospect, I look, but Tim Rice's involvement is always going to make me a bit sus um, because of his Tory cunt mate Lloyd Webber. Mm. Um, and that kind of just, just that national success story, entrepreneurial creativity thing that they had yeah. that always made this yeah. seem like, I don't know, the kind of music Michael Fabricant would like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his, his shirt with a collar underneath a sweatshirt look, which is, I never, yes. never felt comfortable. Yeah, it's a great song that I wish almost could, could have been sent back in time so that we could hear what ABBA would have done with it. It's as if ABBA have started franchising themselves out and this is the British. Um, wing mm. yeah we've yeah. got a tiny Agnetta and yeah. a, a more Celtic Frieda yeah you know if that had happened who would Benny and Bjorn be I think Richard still go <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but Bjorn I'm not sure isn't it funny though how everyone hears this and instinctively knows that Elaine Page is singing Agnetta's part and Barbara Dixon is singing Frieda's part yes mm. might have been the other way around no no it wouldn't it would have been this way around yeah so we got two British women who were obviously supposed to be Swedish, hmm. pretending to be Russians. It's, it's just fucking with my head. <laughs> As for the video, it's a lot of standing about in front of uh, windows. But we also get a bit of um, them walking past um, security cameras and fences. Yeah. Almost as if they're going to walk in by accident on the uh, Nikita video without the <laughs> Yeah. And ate his video alert in a, a strange kind of cafe, sparse like yes. a stage set and lit in unnatural shades where the singer sits lost in thought as some schmuck wipes the tables or sweeps mm. the floor because it's almost closing time that intolerable melancholy and introspection except yeah. performed so it's extroverted introspection 
uh, and he's thinking, fucking hell, Alison Moyet one night, Lane Page this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck's sake. <laughs> he's supposed to get home for sports night. Yes. <laughs> and the other weird thing about the video is, is that the heights of um, Page and Dixon, they kind of change. Because when you see them standing <laughs> up throughout the video, Barbara Dixon is just towering over Elaine mm, Page. Mm, one of yeah. them must be really massively tall, or one, one of them must be really short. Or maybe both. But by the end of it, they're almost the same height. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> Elaine Page is obviously standing on a box. Yeah, yeah must be. Yeah. They should have accentuated that a bit more, actually, for some little and large type shenanigans. Or dressed up as chess pieces. <laughs> you know, one of them could be the queen, the wife, and the other one could be the, the, the treacherous knight or something. They're aggravatingly <laughs> static, though. I mean, the thing is, with that set, with all the sets, with the chessboard pieces and the cafe, it's just crying out for a Legs & Co routine. Not a zoo yes. routine, but it yeah. is crying out for a Legs & Co routine. But hang on. Yeah. I, I am not yeah. convinced of Dixon as the, the tolerant wife, to be honest with you. Dixon sings He Needs His Fantasy and Freedom. And I don't think Dixon would sing that. Um, she's unconvincing in that role, I would argue. Um, she yeah. looks like she cut somebody up um, for doing such a thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, she's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> but look, this song has got a big place in my adolescence um, where it doesn't really belong, but there it is all the same. At my school, the music department was in a separate building, like this collapsing, many-roomed building, which I think had been bought up by the school many years previously when it was a boarding school. But now... It was just full of xylophones and cheap Spanish guitars and <laughs> slightly out of tune upright pianos. Right? Mm. And the music teachers, being music teachers, allowed you to hang around in there in lunch breaks and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, and you'd either sit and talk to them and they'd treat you like an adult, or, and your presence would make them feel young and cool. <laughs> we all sit in the wrong way round on the chairs. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, we had big dreams. And <laughs> fame costs, and right there is where we started paying. <laughs> or you just loaf around in groups on the stairs, you know, or, or you'd go and sit in one of the rooms, you know, with halting piano recitals of the theme from EastEnders and <laughs> Axel F creeping through the thin plaster walls. Uh, but it was a great thing to have this place, especially in the late 80s when it fucking rained all the time, all year round, if you remember. Mm. And mm. sitting in there in a damp blazer, eating a chip cob from the chippy on the high street, <laughs> trying and failing to chat up the flautists and cellists with their sexy <laughs> posh voices. That was my late 80s, right? That's how I remember it. Blazing youth. Oh, isn't it madness they can't be yours? Yeah, I, uh, but, but but check this out. There were two main music teachers. There was an old John Lennon nut with a beard and a younger bloke who was very much in the uh, Peter Davison, Mike Smith, mild, fair-haired, middle-class Englishman mould, right? Mm. Very non-fiery and sensibly shod with these grey, thick-cord trousers and a, a V-neck, right? Not what you would ever think of as a heartthrob teacher by any means. And yet... It became apparent that a lot of these musical girls, these quite well-bred musical girls, towards whom I'd been driven because everyone else thought I was a weirdo, also (laughs) thought I was a weirdo and had crushes on Mr. Wilson Mm. because this was the late 80s and I can't overstress the extent to which social and sexual conservatism had infected British youth, at least where (laughs) I was living at the time. And it was completely natural for intelligent teenage girls, not eight-year-olds, not nine-year-olds, intelligent 
teenage girls to sneer at the misunderstood young rebel and <laughs> cultivate their unrequited love for a 35-year-old teacher with no personality <laughs> and a face like a thin mist uh, and a legal obligation to not kiss them. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's possible, it's possible that it's just that I was a teenage dickhead and a, a half-formed blob of precocity and excruciating pretension, but... I doubt that very much. Um, <laughs> anyway, here's the story, right? A few years after this Top of the Pops, we were doing our GCSEs, and the music GCSE involved a performance exam. So we all had to go into the main room in this building, one by one or, or two by two, and perform for a panel of teachers, singing and playing, uh, with one of them accompanying on the piano, mm-hmm. if necessary. So right. on the day this was happening, we were all lounging around the music department, waiting our turn. And I heard two girls rehearsing this song, I Know Him So Well. And of course, being a teenage know-nothing, I, I scoffed at them. And I said, <laughs> how are you doing that song? It's for old folks, and it's like being a Tory or something. <laughs> and they looked at each other meaningfully and the one who was always prone to giving things away said actually it's a lovely song the lyrics are very interesting and they Mm -hmm. both sort of blushed and you know it slowly it started to dawn on me oh no when they went in to perform i went around the side and peered in through the window and watched (laughs) them deliver a school choir-tastic rendition of this song with and to Mr. Wilson at the piano. Oh, oh my God. And I realised I was watching a genuine emotional outpouring. Right, this was their hour tune. These oh. lyrics, <laughs> these Sir Tim Rice lyrics, I should say, <laughs> expressed their feelings towards the, the, the unreachable, impossible, idealised figure of their fucking boring dickhead music teacher. And there they were experiencing this moment of unparalleled romantic intensity as the rain poured down and a bitter young Sid Barrett fan spied on them through the window, <laughs> laughing uncontrollably, but knowing deep down that the joke was on me. And they were visibly shaken afterwards. Uh, one of them perhaps had to console the other on the stairs. <laughs> and while I was not outspokenly mean... I must admit I wasn't feeling the poignancy at the time. <laughs> and neither were any of my friends who I all told about it who all <laughs> responded the same way as me, basically by saying, ah, <laughs> But inevitably the joke was on me forever because about a year later I'd had this very long-lasting crush on a different girl who inevitably I'd idealised as cool and smart and intriguing. And one night at a party, she drank enough to end up outside with me, where we shared an intimate moment, but not in the way I'd hoped. She couldn't kiss me, she explained, because she was so mixed up about her feelings for Mr Wilson. (sighs) And if she'd had a magic wand, she'd wave it all, and everything would be fine, and she'd be settled down with a bloke in Clark's shoes on a layered centre party. And so instead of getting my first kiss, I was expected to feel sympathy for this predicament. (laughs) At 16 years old, maybe even 17 actually, just standing there, nodding gravely, like, "Mm, that must be very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Raging anarchistic teenage fuck hormones Mm. coursing through me. Oh, yeah, it must be, it must be, uh, 
must be very difficult. Poor you. And already I understood the world was going to refuse to do what I wanted and needed it to (laughs) for the rest of my life, seemingly out of pure spite, almost like eternal karma for watching two honest romantic girls trying to follow their hearts and going ah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's been coming back to bite me on the ass ever since and what did you do taylor what did i do for your examination i believe i played a song of my own composition oh my god Oh, yes. Oh, I was hoping you'd say, oh, yeah, I did Careless Whisper. Yeah, I did One Night in Bangkok. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is the scene where the uh, the Russian Grandmaster kills Apollo Creed, <laughs> which, which I only mentioned to uh, to uh, Winkle Neal's Rocky Four anecdote out of him. Go on. Oh, well, yeah, when I went to see Rocky Four, which is one of my favourite films, um, <laughs> I, was with a, I was with a mate, and we, you, know, you know the scene where Apollo Creed um, gets killed? by um Ivan Drago. Mm. Um me and my mate were giggling. <laughs> you <will lose. laughs> me and my mate were laughing our ass off at that bit. And um <laughs> this bloke in front of me, really hench bloke, big you know, sort of teardrop tattoo and all of that, um turns around, jabs a finger at me and my mate. You fucking giggle again, I'll fucking make you Apollo Creed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we buttoned it after that it was i mean we were scared yeah. shitless but we we're too scared to even move seats but um yeah <laughs> but people had no problem with that stuff in terms of shouting stuff out in cinemas back then as i recall anyway mm. i remember racist yeah. stuff when i went to see indiana jones and the temple of doom you know the bit at the beginning with the indian village that's been i know some yeah. suddenly quite a poignant moment that all the kids have been kidnapped and all of that and just this loud voice in the back of uh, the Odeon Scream 1 uh, in Jordan Welling commentary. I came here to watch Indiana Jones, not fucking Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so I know him so well would spend two more weeks at number one, finally yielding to You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive. It would go on to sell over 823,000 copies in the UK, became the second biggest single of 1985 after The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush, and remains the biggest selling single by a female duo in the UK. However, neither singer scored another top 40 hit in the UK again, although the song was taken to number five by Steps in December of 2001 when it was cut and shut with Words Are Not Enough and taken to number 11 in April of 2001 by Susan Boyle and Peter Kay in a dress. (sighs) Not heard that. I bet it's hilarious. Hey, come on, I'll be a sport. It's for charity. (laughs) Yeah. I'm guessing it was for charity anyway. It fucking better have been. (laughs) I know him so well. I know him so well. (laughs) I'm going to skedaddle back to Radio 1 now, so see you soon. Mike Reed and Bruno Brooks are on top of the pubs next week.
cut back to Bates caressing Long from behind, while a couple of youths behind them pull faces and lark about. Long makes her excuses and attempts to leave, reminding us she's on Radio 1 right now. Bates informs us that Mike Reed and Bruno Brooks are in the chair next week, and Long calls them the little and large of Radio 1. Then they sign off with Personality by Eugene Wilde. We've already covered Eugene Wilde in chart music number 44 when he took Gotta Get You Home Tonight to number 18 in November of 1984, and this is the follow-up. This time, he's teamed up with his old band Simplicious for a double A-side featuring Let Her Feel It, and this track, which is the one that's been picked up by Radio 1. It entered the charts last week at number 43, and this week it slithered up five places to number 38. And, as is the style in mid-80s Top of the Popsers, it's the accompaniment for some enforced jollity and capering amongst the studio floor. Now, Neil, Mm -hmm. Zoo, essentially no more, aren't they? Mm. They did the last proper routine on September the 29th of 1983, when they did the bits to Superman by Black Lace and... What You Got, What I Need by Unique. And uh, Flick Colby parted from the show, but members were kept on. Right. Known to the production crew by now as cheerleaders, but known to chart music as City Farm. And here they are looking like plain clothes police officers at a disco in an episode <laughs> of Juliet Bravo. <laughs> no official routine, but yeah, we stab them with their, our steely knives, but you just can't kill the beast. They're still yeah. here. They're still here. I mean, they've been pushed right to the back. That's the giveaway. Yeah, yeah. They've been pushed right to the back to a certain extent. And we get a lovely sort of, I would say, about 15 seconds where you can finally see a bit of the audience. Um, Tantalising glimpses of the kind of mixed bag that is pop fans in 1985. Um, But then the show ends on a kind of looping 360-degree shot of just two really dull, never mind the name, they're zoo Mm. cunts, um, just doing their usual yeah. step. Um, very disappointing end to the show, yeah. really. Um, I would have liked to, uh, as ever, just see more of the crowd. Yeah, it's those yeah. two. Like, she, a one-woman 15th birthday party circa February 1985. <laughs> and, and he mm. also looking rather like Jazz Coleman, if he had just lightened up a bit and <laughs> yes. let his body move to the music. <laughs> Felt all that tension draining out of his shoulders. Yeah. Maybe put on a brightly patterned shirt, open to the navel and some... White slacks and explore his feminine side, but no, no, you know, mm. too many matte black stages to stalk, <laughs> too many yes. front rows to sweat on, too many boardroom tables to destroy. <laughs> well, quiet, quiet. I mean, we, we do get a good look at the kids, finally. And you have to say, in comparison to the last episode of Chart Music Taylor, these kids, the youth of today, have got much to say. Oh, yeah. And they're having a lot more fun than their counterparts from 75. Certainly more diversely dressed. Yeah. But I can't help noticing that uh, ties and shirts are starting to creep in. Yes. Already. Yeah, that Sid the sexist mm. look from the late 80s, like out of the Hitman and her. <laughs> yeah, I hated that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. there's also a lot of people with big red hearts sewn onto their outfits, as though yes. there had been some plan to make this a Valentine's Day special. Because it's Valentine's Day, isn't it? Yeah. Until someone looked at the lineup of the Smiths, Killing Joke, Terry Hall, Gary Newman, (laughs) and uh, allowed that idea to to expire on the vine. By the end, we see Bates and Long kind of like coupling a bit, but it just doesn't work, does it? No. I mean, you know she belongs to Peter Powell. 
for a kickoff. <laughs> well, but number two, it's Simon Bates she's with. And he's a bit WC handy with her, isn't he? Yes. He's a bit um, bit overly familiar. I mean, Bates never normally does that, I find. No. So that surprised me a little bit. No, you're safe in Simon Bates's giant paw. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, Janice feels like Fay Ray. <laughs> so this song, I mean, I don't remember it at all, but it's it's about as good as this sort of music can get in 1985, isn't it? Yeah. Old Eugene, yeah. He's, um, he's, he's not trying to get anyone home tonight. No, well, he's not, he's no, not into bullshit funny. superficiality, Al. He's into personality. He's into... What, yes. what you know the yes. content of your soul, rather than mm. you know how much Revlon you've got on. So um, mm. that seems to be the underlying message of the song. Yeah, but I mean, this is among the first of the cringing eighties anti-sex songs, mm. isn't it? Yeah. But this one's worse than usual because he's not even saying that he doesn't want sex. He's trying to wangle his way towards it dishonestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying, oh yeah. I'm different because I like your personality. Oh, fuck off, you transparent <laughs> fuck. But as soon as he shuts up, this does become a half-decent record because mm. the instrumental mm. track is is actually a bit peculiar. There's quite a lot going on, um, whereas it's his generic nasal 80s uh, singing that's the drag, you know what I mean? Mm. Because it's got that, that snappy early 80s Lindrum sound still hanging on to it, which is good as far as I'm concerned. And a and an absolute torrent of DX7 bell toned keyboard tinkly. <laughs> like so many of these records from yeah. this era, right? it just sounds like someone with a spoon hitting glasses with different amounts of water in them, you know. Mm. But it sounds all right, I think. I mean, now that the the troweled on mid eightiesness of this record has become charming in a way which it wasn't at the time mm. or for years afterwards, you know. And so Slightly ironically, for a record about a man pretending to ignore the surface and only caring about the human being, uh, it's got a lovely surface, but the human being is a bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great record to end the show on, I think. Yes. Because reason being, it gets everyone dancing. And what was always the pleasure of seeing the audience dance is particularly when you see those odd little figures in the audience, you can tell they're there for just one band, but, but yeah. you know, and a, a really part of one subculture, perhaps, forced, not forced to, but dancing and responding to, like, basically disco music. Um, it's, it's always really nice. But, you know, the, in the distance, because th- there is distance in the studio. It's fucking enormous. It it's is, like a super it? club with a super club attached to the power super club and yet <laughs> the camera's been put in the hands of some monomaniacal dickhead who's just focused in on the two most objectionable looking people in the yeah. entire setup you know have a wonder yeah. let's have a look at the kids of 85 because yeah. the, like you say al you're dead right it's quite a diverse bunch and it's mm. quite an interesting bunch as well it's just, it's another missed opportunity with the crowd i think so the following week personality jumped four places to number 34 where it stayed for two weeks before slithering away After that, Eugene Wilde went back to being a solo artist, having two more minor hits in 1985 with Che Che Cool and the Zamo defying Don't Say No, and then never (laughs) trouble the charts again. And that closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. And it closes the book on an entire era of the show because four days later, Michael Grade, who had been controller of BBC One for five months, put the new BBC weekday schedule into operation. 
The chat show Wogan was moved from every Saturday to Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. And on the 19th of February, the first episode of EastEnders was broadcast, originally running on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That, combined with Grade's edict that as many homegrown TV shows as possible be broadcast in half-hour blocks, because that's what they did in America, meant that this would be the last regular 40-minute episode of Top of the Pops. And seven months later, it would be brought forward to 7 o'clock, where it would stay for the next 11 years. End of an era, chaps. Yeah, and it, I should have felt the repercussions and remembered the repercussions, but I don't. I'm not sure I noticed, to be mm. honest with you. Um, yeah, that's and odd, isn't it? It is a bit odd, but but truth be told, that the, the, the great thing about this particular episode, in a way, is that it's 40 minutes. There's too mm. much in it, and, and it, yeah. it leaves you a bit groggy, but it, too much in a good way. In a yes. good kind of, oh, fucking hell, where am I kind of way. Um, yeah. the, uh, you know, there is an argument for saying the half-hour format is actually better and tighter and they start eliminating things that shouldn't have been in it. Mm. But unfortunately, the music policy, I would say, goes downhill from then on. So yeah. uh, the, the weird thing about this episode is that musically, it doesn't really point anywhere in terms of what would happen later on in the decade. But I, I'm astonished that I didn't really notice that it had dropped. I know it's the change in schedules and I was, a, I was an EastEnders watcher from, from the off. But I didn't mourn it. I wasn't saddened by it. And I don't really recall a load of letters into the music press moaning about it. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Because as they've just demonstrated, you can get a lot of different things in a 10-minute slot. Yeah. That means that chances aren't going to be taken anymore. Yeah. 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 But as we've seen, they weren't taking much chances anyway. They just well, used that 10 it. minutes to wedge in loads of American stuff. Yeah, I mean, if that's what the extra 10 minutes is for, Jonathan King's fucking shit, good riddance. Yeah. I'll tell you the worst part of all of this. You know who composed the Wogan theme? Go on. B.A. Robertson. Oh. Yeah, must have been down in his dowry. <laughs> <laughs> So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC kicks on with a question of sport, followed by the nine o'clock news, the last episode of the murder series, Charters and Coldicott, question time from Manchester, and they close out the night with rock school, with comments (laughs) from John Taylor, Gary Moore, Ian Pace and Carl Palmer. Rock School must have had a place in your life back then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Deirdre Cartwright. (laughs) Such a weird concept, Rock School. It's like if there was a programme called Sex Chore. (laughs) In music education at the moment, Rock School is cited not as an influence, but what we are trying to avoid. Really? (laughs) Yeah, very much so, especially when it comes to teaching music production, music performance and things like that. Whereas I remember watching those shows, because I didn't watch them late. I think they were often repeated at the weekend early. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember watching those. They were instructive. I didn't play, uh, you know, even before I played an instrument, they were were okay. They weren't Mm. so bad. But yeah, that's everything we want to avoid in music pedagogy these days, apparently. Why is that? No idea. I think it came across as a little bit smug. And it came across as a little bit mm. foreboding. For I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to ask a music production teacher. I'll get back to you on that, Al. Please do. <laughs> but it was good having a woman presenting a, a music show as a, an authority figure. Well, we had Muriel Gray, sort of. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> BBC Two have just started Out of Court, the law and justice programme hosted by Sue Cook, which throws light on the dark alleyways of crime, according to Radio Times. Then it's the Carla Lane sitcom The Mistress, starring Felicity Kendall. 
Then 40 Minutes documents two stories of love from the West Midlands. And they finish off with the Rockford Files, Newsnight and more red-hot open university action. ITV has just finished a repeat of Duty Free, followed by Another Chance to See, a five-year-old episode of Minder, where Terry's day out in Brighton is marred when he has to guard a racehorse and tries to cop off with Lisa Goddard. After TVI and News at 10, it's a repeat of Kojak, followed by Looks Familiar, and they close down with Night Thoughts by Paul Boateng. <laughs> Channel 4 has just finished Discoverer, where David Bellamy looks at the social life of hares, and then Annika Rice's arse takes a jaunt through Shropshire in Treasure Hunt. After the final episode of the kidnapped thriller The Price, Eddie Charlton takes on Rex Williams in the Blue Arrow Masters Billiards Tournament. Then it's Assaulted Nuts, the sketch show starring Cleo Rockos and Tim Brooke Taylor, and they finish off with an examination of Islam in today's world in Hall of Mirrors. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I mean, oddly enough, I remember being in the playground tomorrow after this episode and it was just killing joke oh my god did you see killing joke if you heard killing joke do you know killing joke um it really blew my head open that one so i would have been talking about killing joke a lot and also terry yeah i mean morrissey would love to think we'd all be talking about him pretending to machine gun the audience (laughs) but by now he's old hat and it's it's gone a bit flat i remember being more intrigued by andy rourke's salmon colored fender bass because i've never seen one uh but yeah dead or alive possibly color filled and jazz coleman's Pompeii mosaic face would uh, <laughs> edge them out, I think. What are we buying on Saturday? Uh, Dead or Alive, Colourfield, um, Killing Joke, probably. Uh, I wasn't buying How Soon Is Now, despite being a Smiths fan, because I'd already got it twice. Mm. Uh, and the B-side was a track from Meat Is Murder, which I'd already just bought. And I wasn't going to splash out more money and get the 12-inch uh, for that previously unreleased third track because that turned out to be an instrumental. Thanks, lad. <laughs> yeah, also, what, Dead or Alive, Colourfield, uh, Don Henley, all of which I liked at the time. Mm, it's a good strike rate for a mid-80s top of the pops, isn't it? Mm, definitely. What does this episode tell us about February of 1985? This does make the first half of 1985 look much yeah. better than it yeah. really was. Mm. In all sorts of ways, and not just the 40 minutes thing, it's a big episode. There's lots in it, and the small isn't kind of really allowed anymore. But what it tells me now is that it's not the Nadia it's often characterised as, 1985. Mm. I mean, what it is revealing of, in a sense, is the different tangents and urges and trajectories that had led up to this point. What it gives me nothing of, really, is what the fuck is about to happen. Or what's going to happen in 86, mm. 87. I don't really get that. But as a kind of index of, of what's happened to all the different yeah. things that have been going on in the 80s, it's a, it's a 40 minute slab of honesty, the shit and the, and the gold. Um, it's all kind of in there. Mm. Yeah, I would say don't let those good records fool you. Don't let the five fool you. This is now the second half of the 80s, as will very soon become uh-huh. apparent. Mm. And uh, live aid, here we come. Welcome to the Hades. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I counted 21 different singles that got airplay on this episode. And it does make you wonder that why didn't they persist with this? You know, as a snapshot of the charts in 1985, it's, it's pretty comprehensive. It is, yeah. it is. Even though the tracks on that have, that have already been and gone, and tracks that wouldn't do anything, 
in the top 40. It's still pretty comprehensive. And you just wonder, if they'd have brought EastEnders a week early, and this was a half an hour episode, what what would they cut out? Mm. I think Killing Joke might have not got in. Well, you can't help thinking they cut out all the good shit, you know what I mean? So the, yeah. If you take 10 minutes out of a 40-minute show, the 10 minutes in this show that that could be, that could be the colour feel and Killing Joke gone. Yeah. In which case, you've suddenly got a shit episode atop of the pot. Yeah. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All I need to do now is the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusic. Reach us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Ta very much, Neil Kulkarne. Good luck with your posture corrector, Al. God bless you, Taylor Parks. Cheers. My name's Al Needham, and I... Hang on. My name's Al Needham, and I am now standing on my computer table like a god. My natural situation. Arseholes. <laughs> oh, Chart music. Great big Hi, and thanks for listening to the online Our Tune. So, let's begin. I was working at Barry Island Butlins selling seafood when I had my first kiss. It was over the seafood trolley with a girl called Steph from Basingstoke. And it was probably to the sound of Jerry and the Pacemakers performing live in the background because it was a festival of the 60s weekender. So only this year, 85, Steph from Basingstoke turned up again. And one night after I'd finished my shift, um, I met up with her in the Butlins disco. My, my main memory is that we had a slow dance to Careless Whisper by George Michael, right? Simon feels unsure As he takes Steph's hand and leads her to the dance floor As the music dies in between his thighs Something's getting tumescent Simon's pitching a tent And the problem was that I was wearing a pair of fashionable pleated trousers And um, when our bodies parted I was visibly showing my enjoyment In what fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm will know as a pants tent Time could never the awkward throbbing of a bell end There's a sinking heart as the swelling starts And they look down to contemplate a fall of Billy 
he's smart. He's never gonna dance again. Guilty plea to trousers have got no rhythm. As they watch his crotch distend, he knows it isn't cool. He shouldn't have shouldn't better have than to wear off. them slacks. He wants to hide his side, his pants tent. So he's never gonna dance again. The way he danced with Steph. Visibly showing my enjoyment. Tonight he's feeling so forlorn. He wishes he could lose this horn. Maybe it's better this way. She doesn't cops off with someone else anyway. He stands there looking so defeated. He wishes his trousers weren't so pleated. He turns and walks away. Back to his cockle tray. Visibly showing my enjoyment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Neil Kulkarni's stomach. turned up the next night hoping to run into her again but um, you know what did I see uh, the treacherous Steph from Basingstoke snogging someone else but to be fair to her I did stink of cockles probably guilty pleated trousers I got no rhythm visibly showing my enjoyment Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have to do that. That weird kadunk that yeah, lights well, going off makes for some reason in film. <laughs> All Rather Mysterious. 